0: Welcome, my name is Kareem Kanji and this is episode 34. Today's guest is award-winning investigative and consumer reporter Sean O'Shea. Sean is uh, regarded as one of the most tenacious reporters in TV today. He's exposed organized crime figures, scam artists, and other unscrupulous contractors at frequent risk. Apparently, he was once assaulted on air by biker gang members who had attacked him With a fire extinguisher of all things. Anyways, I hope you enjoy my conversation with Global TV's Sean O'Shea. Live from Pacific Junction Hotel, Girth Radio in session. Okay, nice.
1: Um, there was a nice guy in the uh, this guy with the uh, with the short uh, hair and the the, sh- the sort of uh, peach colored uh, yeah thing. He recognized me and he wanted to buy me a drink. I said, "Are you sure about that?" He goes, "Yeah, you do great work." <laughs> so I said, I- "I'm giving you an out." I took his beer.
0: You took his beer.
1: Well, no, he he offered me. He oh, bought okay. me a beer. He bought me a beer. So I how was the beer? The beer was good.
0: Nice, awesome. <laughs>
1: how long have you been doing this?
0: I, I've listened this- to a couple of them. Oh, excellent. Yeah. Uh, your episode thirty four okay um,
1: what's the more what are some of the interesting ones I heard you did liam and I heard you do jackie redmond
0: yeah yeah okay. um, i've done some really interesting ones that's that's a great question that i'm totally not prepared for that's but okay. now I know that's... how people feel when I ask them questions um, i've had a number of them um, so I really enjoyed speaking with arturo marcano okay um, he's with uh, e s p n Mm-hmm. Uh their Spanish version. Yeah. Um and so we were talking about uh baseball, racism, um how the MLB treats certain countries uh versus how they treat others. Okay. Um, and I've I've heard him speak um at a couple of local events. Can so I? I'm a big fan of sort of uh the work that he's done. And he's he's okay. written a book. Okay. Um about that. Um, I've had a uh, great conversation with um, Katija Kaji. Um, she is a mother who is uh, one of the mothers behind the No Fly List Kids yeah. initiative. I don't know yeah, if you... Yeah, yeah. I'm aware of that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So um, her and her husband happened to be friends of mine. Okay. And it was their son back um, in December, I guess. Yeah. When they were going to the hockey game, that got stopped, and it was like the final straw. Yeah, um,
1: I think I heard her on, on As It Happens. Might be, yeah. yeah, yeah. They've done lots of me, all
0: all all the rounds. Um, I spoke with a kid named Segun Akinsanya. Um, he was episode twenty-two. He he was featured. I found out about him through Toronto Life Magazine. Okay, he was a cover story. Um, I don't know if it was 10 plus years ago, maybe a bit longer. He um, was put away for murder. Um, and he came out and he, while he was in jail and about to leave, started turning his life around. Um, and now he's doing a lot of community initiatives mm-hmm. and stuff. So so that was that was interesting. That's interesting. What's yeah. the turnaround
1: time on the podcast?
0: Today being Tuesday uh, with a long weekend. Probably I'll get it up tomorrow night.
1: Oh, that's pretty quick.
0: Yeah. Okay. And uh, so we're, we're, we're getting out of our, our, our beta phase now. Okay. Um, so I've been doing, it's interesting, I've been doing... I was going to ask you
1: your story here.
0: Yeah, that's fine. Uh, yes, yeah, so I'll tell you this, but the story yeah. of this. Uh, I've been doing um, this sort of thing since 2010. Okay. But I started out um, focusing in on social media. Yeah. Uh, so my podcast was called SMS. And, um, it was the the recording studio wasn't like this; it was in someone's basement, but I live in Scarborough, and the basement was in mississauga uh so every oh, the commute yeah, so Sunday I drive over yeah uh so you're talking about an hour and a half uh or two hours of total drive time um I was there for maybe three hours, so that there's there's the whole sunday um and so after i and I really enjoyed it and i I just enjoy. The format. Um, I'm still thinking as a kid that I want to be on radio. Um, you know, WKRP was a favorite TV show of mine growing up.
1: Les well, Nessman.
0: Yeah. Um, and and so I really enjoyed it, but it just it just got too much. Um, and then I ended up starting my own business a number of years ago. Um, and I wanted to continue doing the same thing. I thought it was a great opportunity for me to learn. Uh, but also great opportunity to increase awareness about myself and, and my business. So, but I didn't know how to do any of this stuff, any of the production. Uh, so what I did was I, I had a flip camera, um, I had a stand, so I put it up on a table, um, and I and I rented a room at uh, Young and uh, Dundas at what is now the Tangerine Bank. It used to be the ING. Mm-hmm. They had a space in there. Um, And I'd rent that out, and I'd invite entrepreneurs, and we'd have anywhere between a 20 to 40-minute conversation, and I'd put those up on YouTube. Um, And then I stopped doing that. My business, I I shut down my business. I stopped doing that. And then about a year and a half ago, uh, my friend Sammy, um, who is, we call him the, um, the, the, the manager, program manager, he said he's got the space. The bar owner wants to develop an online radio station. Would I want to bring back my social media show? I said, No. <laughs> I do that as a job during the day. Um, there's only so much that I can do, you know, or, or talk about it. I want to break from that, but I, I, I w- I'm interested in doing something. Um, and so I, I, I got back to him and I said, Sammy, what if I just talk to interesting people? What if I just talk to people that are doing interesting things? The city is big enough. Mm -hmm. that there's unlimited stories that can be told. Um, So he says, yeah, go for it, do it. I said, but I don't know any of this production. I have no clue.
1: Mm.
0: Don't worry about it. We got a producer. He'll come in. He'll set things up for you. You just have to press record. Um, And no one's ever done that for me.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know it all now.
0: Now now I know it. (laughs) uh, But like I said, we're getting out of beta. So uh, as, as uh, as of now... Uh, I have finally been approved on iTunes. Um and I had no clue how to do this XML code stuff. Mm-hmm. Um and I learned how to do it. I was up till two thirty AM on Sunday. Uh going through a bunch of emails that two people have been sharing with me. Kareem, this is how you do it. It's simple. I said, I don't get this tech stuff, man. <laughs> um so I just got an email yesterday, iTunes has approved it, so um I I'm gonna start putting right now it's on, on what's called Mixcloud. cloud. Um and soon I'll be now putting it up on, publishing it on iTunes, uh, Google Play, Stitcher. And, uh, and then we'll see where it goes. Good. Yeah. So, uh, so, so that's my story here. Yeah,
1: well, thanks for inviting me.
0: Yeah, no problem. I really, really cool. appreciate
1: it's it. It's a very cool setup,
0: too. Yeah. yeah it, it is really neat. And, and, and the crowd in the bar um, here at Pacific Junction is, is always different. Last year when I was doing it during the, uh, the Jays run, it was packed um, mm-hmm. I would have this conversation. We'd be done. It'd be like the third inning, and we're out there enjoying drinks and and tacos with everybody. Um, <laughs> no, you know, it's
1: a very interesting venue.
0: Yeah, you've been in media for many many years, yourself. Are we starting? We've started. Oh, okay. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I started when I was 17 years old, and I was uh, I grew up in Calgary. And my sister says, you know, that as a kid. I walked around the neighborhood with a, with a microphone Yeah, when I was four or five years old, a fake microphone. So I don't know where it came from. But I started young, and I started in radio. Uh, I had an uncle who had a drinking buddy who was the manager of a television station or a radio station in Lethbridge. And I really wanted to get into radio. I finished high school a bit early. And I said, uh, how can I get an interview? He said, I'll call him. So I was 17 wow. years old. I would graduated high school half a year early. I'd taken a broadcasting course as a kid when I was 16, 17 in Calgary okay. to kind of get me the fundamentals. And I went down, borrowed my sister's car, took a day off work at this um, government job that I had for a few months, and I got the job. And hmm. I was I was smitten by radio at 17. And I got a job as a disc jockey, and I did news, oh and I God. was making $634 a month, which by today's standards sounds like nothing. But when your apartment is 200 bucks a month, and you're living in a small town, it was You were rich. Yeah, I had money in my pocket. (laughs) (laughs) It was
0: fun. $200 a month. (laughs) It was was a great deal. (laughs) It was a great deal. Yeah. Uh, And and do you have any memories of, I know your sister remembers you walking around town, uh, but do you have any memories of wanting, like the medium, falling in love with that medium?
1: I, I knew that I loved to write. So as a kid, okay. I was I ran a little um, newspaper in the school I went to when I was in grade 8. Mm-hmm. And I became involved in something called Junior Achievement, which yeah, is yeah. still around. Yeah. And I I was a, a newspaper person on that. I loved to write. Maybe I just liked seeing my name in print. But sure. I liked the idea of communicating. As corny as it sounds, I, I really like people. Yeah. And the idea of communicating with people, interacting with people... That's what you do. Yeah. And, and I just found it fascinating, really interesting. And from a very young age and I've done it with, without exception since I was 17 years old, I'm 55 now and I've been working as a journalist on radio and TV my whole life. And, you know, consider it to be a real, you know, as I say, I don't want to make it sound corny, but a real privilege to be able to communicate with people and interact with people and get paid and have a lot of fun.
0: I know when, um, When Liam was here, he was talking about storytelling. And, you know, ever since he can remember, he loved telling stories. Um, And so he goes from his parents wanting him to go to law school uh, and be a lawyer uh, to, uh, you know, convincing his parents, listen, I'm going to a grad program at Ryerson. Um, You know, that's good for something, isn't it? Um, And and just getting into media. Uh,
1: I'm the son of uh, Prince Edward Islander. Uh, my, my late father grew up in PEI, you know, farming family and Irish roots. My mother's side was Northern Italian. So I've actually got my Italian dual citizenship. So a guy with a name like O'Shea, who sounds like he should be coming from <laughs> Dublin, yeah. is, uh, is actually Italian. Italian-Canadian. Yeah, I just got that a couple of years ago. But my father, his storytelling capabilities were bar none. Mm-hmm. You know, he he went to his grave still being able to tell great stories about things that had happened fifty or sixty years earlier, and and I'm so envious of that. And those kinds of you know storytelling roots were embedded in me from a from a young age. And you said your dad's said. from is Irish. My dad's yeah. uh, originally uh, the family is from Ireland. You know, two generations back, but he was born in Prince Edward Island. So you know, PEI is like a little Ireland. You know, wow. it's uh, it's a community of 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 a lot of different people, but a lot of Irish people, but just that capability of to tell stories and remember names and detail, and I'm so in awe of that. You know, well,
0: there's a lot of that recent history from Ireland. You know, they've they've gone through so much um, just recently. Uh, you know, it, there's there's a from my perspective at least, there seems to be a culture and a, and a, a culture of storytellers um, that come out of Ireland.
1: They love to talk. They love to, and I'm I'm generalizing here, but they love to drink. Yeah. They love to talk. I remember going to to Dublin when I was in university in 1983 and spending the summer in in Europe and going to, I'm Roman Catholic, and in Ireland, at least at the time, the pubs didn't open until uh, mass had finished at about noon. So you had to go to church, or at least you had to wait until everybody had gone to church before the pubs opened. And I remember going to the, to the pub in Dublin and just loving to listen to people talk and you could walk in and it's a bit different from the way it is here in Toronto where it's a little more generic and, you know, you wouldn't necessarily get in on somebody's conversation, but it was, and I think it probably still is pretty normal that people will, will, you know, join a conversation and they'll, they'll participate in a story and, you know, you don't have to buy a ticket you can just listen in on these people the storytelling capability wow. of, of people in Ireland is something pretty special I'm not saying that because those are my roots yeah I'm saying that because that's what I found and I think a lot of people would agree with you people De- they just love to talk yeah more than more than listen to themselves I think <laughs>
0: <laughs> well well talking about your your um, your, your roots uh, Ireland uh, Italian um, obviously this past Friday uh, England decided they didn't want any part of <laughs> Uh, being related to all of that they, they had the brexit uh which everyone that i spoke to said no nah, no nah, it's not going to happen don't you know there's, there's too many smart people here so it won't happen um i remember being on a call with my colleague on the thursday uh bi-weekly call that we have and one of our uh, team leaders is in england and i go okay this brexit thing nah, nah it's not going to happen here like, no one and then friday comes around friday night and we've got family in england and oh my goodness the being so upset and stuff. But you know, you've know, you covered a lot of stuff uh, in your career. Um, I'm curious you know, how, this, how, how you see this um, in the grand scheme of things globally.
1: Uh, I did a story on this last Friday uh, after the vote, yeah. and uh, I, I agree with what you're saying. I like a lot of people didn't see this coming. I tend to think, and I'm not speaking from a perspective of, of political education on this, I don't believe it's going to happen. I can't believe okay. I can't believe that after having digested what happened, that that England would realize that there's value in this. I mean, it's not a binding vote; they okay. don't have to do it. Uh, the Parliament will make a final decision on it. There's a lot of political machinations that are going to go on beforehand. But you know, young people have got a vested interest in in being able to have mobility. Um, more young people voted to stay than to go, and more old people, you know, t- took a different view of it. I can't understand why somebody in England would want to take that tack. I mean, there's a lot of, I mean, there's a lot of racism going on in England right now in terms of immigration and those kinds of issues. But if you're somebody who's in England and looks at the future, why would you not want to have access to the rest of Europe? I mean, I've got an Italian passport, so I'm technically able to go over and work in England or work in Ireland or work in Italy or Mm -hmm. work in France or work in Croatia, and that's got great value. Now, am I likely to use it? Probably not. My kids have got it as well. But if you're in England and you have a job opportunity in a place like Paris or in some other EU member country, why wouldn't you want to do that? I mean, that's one of the great values there. So I I think they're going to find a way to get out of this. I think they're going to find a way to, after all the negotiation is done, find a way to say, we're going to stay.
0: So probably the next general election in England or in Great Britain is going to be around that as a as, as, as like the primary focus or platform. I think
1: you're right. I think right? that's the ultimate referendum. Right? Yeah. The ultimate referendum is, vote for me. This is what we're going to do. We're going to yeah. stay. I just think a lot of people voted in this thing thinking that they were protesting, which obviously uh, mm. they were, yeah. but I mean, when we did the story the following day and started, you know, looking at video interviews of people in Britain who had voted, you know, to leave and then realized, wait a minute, I I was just doing it because I I wanted, you know, to make a, a point. Well, you made a point, but, you know, there's a degree of, you know, do you trust the people to make the right decision on a referendum? I don't know. Um, because there 's no accountability when you make a, a decision on a referendum the way that there is if you elect a government, you can hold that individual politician like you if you run and get elected. I can hold you accountable, but how do I col- hold accountable somebody who voted for whatever reason on a protest or some other for some other reason? How do you hold them accountable yeah. you don 't so I, I, I got a feeling that it 's not going to happen
0: and what, was it was it just because of like the whole vote came around, and, and I saw video clips of David Cameron a few years ago saying, we're going to hold a referendum, we're going to ask a question. Do you want in or out? Do we want to stay in or out? Uh, was it just because things were terrible with the economy?
1: You know, I'm again, I'm no expert on, on it because I don't live there, but yeah. I think that's part of it. But I think the, the wave of immigration and settlement and refugees played a part in it. And there's a feeling, you know, when people don't have enough money or think that somebody else is getting an advantage over them and sees an immigrant as they perceive them to be an immigrant getting an advantage over them, I think that people, you know, those biases, those racial attitudes exist. And, you know, England is a pretty diverse place, but Mm -hmm. I think that it's not certainly not immune to racism. I think that played a big part in it from what I see over here.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It was it was was, I'm learning more about it post-Brexit then i heard people talking about it and i said i have too much on my plate
1: well you know the <laughs> the google searches at 2 in the morning after the vote for you know what is the eu were through yeah. the roof because a lot of europeans people in england who were voting didn't realize what the eu actually did so were people making an educated decision yeah. or were they making a visceral one you know just to make a point yeah it's dangerous i think when people decide something without having the right information because let's face it the consequences are pretty extreme for everybody.
0: Absolutely. Um the the joke these days on on Facebook is uh after uh England lost uh their football match uh the google searches for what is football went through the roof as well, <laughs> which I thought was kind of cute. Um but a lot of people um you know post Brexit wore... um and, and these are sort of, you know, more commentators and, and, and people on whether it's on Facebook or Twitter are saying, well, now I wonder what the U.S. is going to do, you know, with with Donald Trump, because he sort of espoused some of the um, at least visually the, the same sort of things that we heard, the rhetoric that we heard from those who supported Brexit uh, in terms of we need to close our borders. Um, we, we need to um, be stronger ourselves rather than rely on outside that sort of stuff. Um, you know c- curious in terms of your opinion um, what you think of is is the Donald Trump phenomenon very similar to what we saw recently in England
1: I think there's a protest side to Donald Trump and there was in in England right People feel that they can have some meaningful some meaningful uh, way of of making a point i mean uh, look. Nobody I know thinks that Donald Trump would be anywhere, you know, today if, if we went back six months ago. You know, this candidacy was not. No
0: one guessed this. No one had this. No.
1: <laughs> so you always you, you can only put so much faith in pundits and people that think they know everything. Yeah. That's why I would never, ever uh, say to anybody that I think I know everything. I I form my opinions based on what I see yeah. And and what looks to be real. But, you know, Trump's phenomenon is... You know Trump can do no wrong, it seems with his constituency, and yeah. there's a lot of people out there that just think I think that he represents you know damn the the traditional um, system um, this guy speaks his mind, this guy is telling the truth, and you know let's listen to him and let's give him a shot. Why not? Mm-hmm. There's a lot of disaffected people out there
0: yeah it's going to be interesting, uh really really interesting and and I think it has something, I I wonder if it's a, if Donald Trump is where he's at, not just because of, uh, of uh, what we call the protest vote, but where he, he is where he is because of the power of, or his ability to understand how to work media.
1: He's brilliant at that. Yeah. He's got Twitter. He's got social media. He doesn't seem to, he doesn't seem to balk at anything. You know, he, 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 he doesn't. He doesn't back down. Yeah. He doesn't walk away from controversial comments very rarely. Yeah. Um, And it doesn't seem to eat away at his core constituency. If anything, you know, it seems to bolster him when, you know, he speaks his mind, right? That's Mm -hmm. how he's seen. He speaks his mind. He, He tells the truth. He tells it like it is. You know, you wonder what he would have to say to really get himself in trouble that he couldn't get out of yeah i don't think we've seen that yet
0: no is, his, is he is he america's version of uh, of rob ford <laughs> you're going to say something <laughs> like that <laughs>
1: He might be. I mean, Rob Ford, I mean, I didn't cover City Hall, but, you know, you couldn't work in media in Toronto and not be doing stories that, around Rob Ford. And Ford had this capability of, again, the people apologizing and, and standing up and saying what he was doing was the right thing. And, yeah, I know he's got kind of a brash and all that sort of thing, but he's telling the truth. I think with Trump, you're seeing the same thing. You know, he, he's telling the truth. He speaks for me. He means well. And all those other things around him, you know, the fact that he may or may not uh, respect women's rights and all these other things, that doesn't really matter so much in the view of a lot of people because the core point he's making is significant, which is, you know, we got to change what we're doing. Yeah. So I think there's a, a lot of similarities in there, especially. I remember Rob Ford uh, interviewing him when he was a, a counselor for a story, and I remember going out on the very early days when he was campaigning with his brother, Doug, and how know there was very little interest nobody took him seriously right? No. but it didn't take long for him to capture that interest because he was seen as a guy who cared and he was seen as and he was a smart politician right yeah. he took care of the little things and the constituency things and and i think trump well it's a different you know it's a different kind of a candidacy he gets how to get to media, which was your question at the beginning, he really, you know, he cuts through, he doesn't care about disparaging journalists who are covering him, you know, no sane politician really would so um, systematically destroy the media covering him. Certainly that wouldn't happen in Canada. Mm -hmm. Uh, We didn't see that with Trudeau, you know, he was very friendly to the media, but Trump doesn't seem to mind disparaging the media. Calling the media on everything and just going straight to what he sees as his yeah. as his voter base.
0: It's interesting. So you you brought up Trudeau and um, you had the opportunity to cover his father.
1: Ah, um, uh, <laughs> well back when well, <laughs> I didn't cover his father so much as my father. I grew up in Alberta, which was so ultimately ultra conservative, and my father back in 1968 actually campaigned for his um, uh, liberal. Um, candidate in Calgary, okay. and of a photograph of my dog with a Trudeau sign on my uh, my cocker spaniel, and uh, I remember my father sent that off to the Prime Minister's press secretary at the time, and got a nice letter back. But it was be- it was strange being in a, a Liberal, a small Liberal in Alberta, where it was very peculiar at the time. But um, now I saw Trudeau later in nineteen 19- actually it was nineteen seventy nine and nineteen eighty eighty two uh nineteen eighty and he was he was coming back, so I covered in Alberta when Joe Clark had run for
0: his minority government. yeah
1: and and then Trudeau you know came back from the hinterland, so again, watching Trudeau and the liberals come back from the um from the abyss was was quite interesting to watch, but again, you know Trudeau had this magnetism, he just had something else. it was the opposite of a Rob Ford, mm-hmm. you know. It was charming, and it was something that people just really want. somebody that you wanted to be around, right? Somebody you'd like to have a drink with or a bite to eat with. That was that was Trudeau, and the young Trudeau was no different.
0: I was going to ask you: Do you see those similarities?
1: Absolutely, got—he's—he's yeah. got, he's, he's got that charm, or something charming about the Trudeau family, <laughs> you know. Regardless of, I think regardless of whether you are a liberal or conservative or NDP, you know he's got it down. I was out in uh, at General Motors doing an economic story a few weeks ago, and Trudeau showed up, and there's this, there's this sense of people wanting to be around him. I was at Lac Megantic for the, for the uh-huh. train derailment uh, a few years ago, and okay. Justin Trudeau was, you know, a Liberal member of Parliament, and he showed up, and there was a buzz around there. You know, he showed up, and the media got giddy about seeing him there which is something you don't usually see
0: yeah that's very strange um what what now i I remember studying in school but i don't remember exactly what it was why there was some energy deal or something that trudeau did that Alberta like hated and and has forever hated him and it uh, apparently gave rise to uh to mulrooney and 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 and, uh, harper um what what was it that trudeau did
1: the National Energy Program, yes. which basically was giving more rights, um, taking more rights away from Alberta, as it was perceived, and and as a result, uh, um, you know, Trudeau didn't win any more friends, even if he had any friends in Alberta at the time. So, you know, Alberta was seen as you know the the province that would provide energy, and it would be dictated, and uh, Alberta didn't like that. And, uh, you know, Trudeau and Alberta were not friends in a general sense after that. Um, I remember, uh, you know, the, the premier of Alberta at the time, you know, telling, telling, uh, the world that, you know, Eastern bastards freeze in the dark, you know, this is the huh. attitude. If you don't like it, you know, you're going to have to deal with us cause we provide all of the energy. But, uh, you know, there's no love lost between the liberals and, and, um, and uh, Alberta for a long time.
0: Yeah. Have things thought over, you think?
1: That's a great question. My my sister still lives in Calgary. I don't go out there all that much now that my parents have passed away. But I think, you know, I think maybe in the last election a little bit more softening mm-hmm. because of of, of Trudeau I and mean, the fact that there's an N D P government in Alberta yeah. is, is something I, That's never pro energy. Av- <laughs> I never thought I'd I never thought I'd see Yeah, I never thought I'd see anything like that. But uh it's still ultimately a pretty conservative place yeah. out there.
0: Yeah, um, you eventually you, you eventually move away from radio um, a- after after a few years. Was it always your intention to go into into television?
1: I don't know if I had a career plan. And okay, I, <laughs> I was working. I was just love that six hundred yeah. bucks. <laughs> I was uh, a university student at the journalism school at the University of Virginia, which was a great boutique journalism school. They graduated thirty students a year. Wow. And uh, I really, really had a great experience there. And I, I got a job offer in my final year of university to anchor the evening weekend news at CBC, the own station. Wow. So I'm 23 years old. It was a beautiful big station. It was, you know, by Toronto standards, Regina is a small market. Sure. But CBC in Saskatchewan is a very important institution. And so it was a great opportunity. I did that uh, my final year and the following year, I started working at CBC in Regina and Sask- Saskatoon and that was my entree and my my television training over and above journalism school was in the CBC mentality and in the the journalism that they taught and trained and that was my foundation so did I always want to be in television I never thought about it that far but once I got into it I loved it yeah and 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 I was treated so well and I was given great opportunities and that's where I am, you know, 30 years later, 35 years later.
0: There's, um, you know, outside of, you know, obviously there are different mediums, radio and TV, but in terms of the journalism aspect um, of things, what difference, or are there more similarities and differences between, you know, journalism on the radio and journalism on television?
1: I don't think there are. I think that, you know, good stories are good stories, good ethics are good ethics, writing is writing they're different forms um, and with television you generally get more time and with radio your writing has to be different because you don't have a picture to support it mm. they're different sides to the the same record and they're both interesting. they're both interesting
0: forms um you you only at CBC for a few years um, before coming to the big city um uh, you know I've I've spoken with um uh the, the person that spoke with uh, prior to to this uh episode um was uh, Hussein Madavji. Um you know went to Ryerson here um and then went to Winnipeg um and then Sacramento before coming back to Toronto. Um ended it, it was always like Toronto if you're if you want to stay in Canada Toronto is the place you want to eventually get back to. They say you want to go small. You obviously started off um you know in your neighborhood, in your province, and then came here. I'm curious: was that always a? I know you don't have it; didn't have a career path. Um, but was it always? A, I, I, you know, one of these days I want to make it to Toronto or New York or wherever the wherever it may be.
1: I worked in Crow's Nest Pass, Alberta, Lethbridge, <laughs> Calgary, Edmonton, Regina, Saskatoon, different versions of the the smaller markets. And I, I mentor young journalists. I mentor about ten a year at Global uh, on an internship program, and I'm always telling people, you want to get a job in this business, leave Toronto and go to the West and and cut your teeth out there and and get that experience, because you won't get that out here. The truth of the matter is, I came to Toronto because of my wife, who's out out in the bar right now watching, and (laughs) uh, my wife was a a reporter and a producer at CBC, and she was offered a job as a correspondent on CBC Marketplace, the, the consumer program, so we uh, came out together. I came out to do interviews and try to get a job, and uh, I looked at the opportunities, and and that's how I ended up at Global. So she brought me out. She's not a journalist anymore. She does other things, but uh, that's how I came out here. And I had very little understanding of Toronto and how big it was and Mm. the machinations, but uh, I I think you're right. This is the place to be in Canada if you want to be a journalist and, and working in a place with a diverse kind of story to tell, um and but that's the truth it was my wife who brought me
0: here <laughs> you came for love <laughs> we got
1: married and we tried new jobs and we moved all within a 6 week period so wow. all the stress is thrown into one
0: wow um you know, I'm I'm curious about the type of stories you know out west that one would cover you know obviously you would cover you know if there was a national election or a provincial election um you know but the day to day stuff is it the same thing you know just on a smaller scale that one would hear in Toronto to
1: some extent, but if you're in a place like Saskatchewan, you know you're talking about uh grain prices mm-hmm. and you're talking about aboriginal native issues. That's a big story in Saskatchewan and Alberta because of the population mix and and those kinds of things. so those are two areas where you and oil prices of course are big yeah. in 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 uh, there's a a bigger wider array of stories to tell in a place like toronto for example but toronto is a as big city with you know transit issues and and you know what i focus on is consumer issues and so you know this is a treasure trove of those kinds of stories because people are being affected impacted um, uh, taken advantage of all the time and you see that much more in a place like toronto than you would in a smaller place like regina or even calgary yeah
0: which I think I, I think this was my first powwow that I went to on Saturday Sunday what would you think? I was fascinated I was fascinated and I was disappointed that there weren't more people there so it was uh, it was in my neighborhood um, as a result of uh, this initiative that the city has through the Toronto Arts Council I think it's called called Arts in the Parks um, so it was uh, it was in a priority neighborhood just north of where we are in Scarborough. Um, and it was just amazing. I was just fascinated. We were there for three hours when we thought it was just going to be a quick, you know, half an hour stop to see to see the stuff. Um, and I loved it. Um, you know, I'm, I'm curious, you know, you talked about some, uh, you know, Aboriginal stories being big out west. Um, you know, from from what you've seen, from what you've observed, have we, and, and I call it Canada's dirty secret or, or yeah. Um, you know, we, we sort of hold ourselves proud that... There's not this overt racism um, that we see in, in media that, that we see in the States and, and more recently in Europe. Uh, but I think Canada has this dirty secret with how they've treated um, the Aboriginal population. Um, you know, from what you've observed, have, have we become better or are we making progress, you feel?
1: Well, that's a good question. I think that you're right that Canadians are far more subtle about the racism. Um, And that goes to the same way that, you know, Americans are willing to talk about things much more outwardly. Quick example. If you do man-on-the-street interviews in New York City or in Buffalo, New York or in Chicago or in any U.S. city, I can guarantee you that Americans will speak their mind. You open a mic, you ask them a question, they'll give you an answer. If you do the same kind of man-on-the-street interview, which we occasionally do in a place like Toronto a lot more people will walk away or be unwilling to give you an answer because they don't want to be seen or appear to be a certain way, have a certain opinion. I think Canadians are very much more reluctant about expressing themselves and being seen to be uh, either on the wrong side of public opinion or like they've got the wrong opinion or that they're expressing an opinion. So to your point about the issue that you raised I think that things haven't changed nearly as much as you'd like to think they have because people are fundamentally the same I don't think a lot of people have you know, you hadn't been to a powwow before but you went so your perspective is different now but you also said that a lot of people weren't there so a lot of people you know need to be dragged into things they have to have their eyes opened and sometimes people are here they're comfortable with the familiar and you know and, you know, Native rights, Native issues, Aboriginal issues are kind of strange and foreign to a lot of people. Um, less so in a place like Alberta, where you're far more likely to experience
0: a powwow, for example. Yeah.
1: But I think we're just, we're better at covering things up here.
0: Huh. Interesting, <laughs> to say the <laughs> least. Um, at Global, you've been there for... 29 years. 29 years. Um have you always focused on on consumer issues?
1: No, I've I've done consumer investigative reporting for probably eighteen years. Okay, I've done you know, general reporting, political reporting, elections. Um, I covered the Boston Marathon bombing uh, recently. I covered the um, uh, the disaster. Um, I went to Connecticut for the school shootings, which uh, was probably the the most uh emotionally draining experience of my life, I have to be honest, you know when the tell me about that well, this was Sandy Hook, of course, Connecticut, and uh, you and know how the, long ago was this though? that was uh three years three years little ago. three years it was it was December, it was about a week and a bit before Christmas, and the shooting happened. I was in the newsroom, getting ready one of my consumer reports, and the news director came and said, Can we get you to connecticut we're sending we're sending crews down to Sandy Hook' And Global actually, you know, to their credit, sent a very big crew. We had twelve or fifteen people. It was a big story. We covered it for quite a while. It was significant, even though it was you know at that time an American story, although there were a number of Canadians living down there. But it was so disheartening to see that you know kids were killed unnecessarily because of political decisions that cost them their lives I mean it was Americans who did not want to have, you know, proper reference checks on weapons. And, you know, this guy gets this gun and kills these kids who were as innocent as you could be. And uh, I remember interviewing people uh, at one of the memorials right downtown where we had an office set up. And almost immediately people said, you know, the old saw, you know, guns don't kill, people kill. And I thought to myself here is one of the biggest differences between a Canadian and an American. An American, or at least some Americans, you know, Second Amendment, right to bear arms, see that, you know, this was um, an outcome of having weapons. And a Canadian would go, why in God's name do you need to have automatic weapons? Why do you need an assault weapon? It just, it just, it floored me and it frightened me and it, you know, I was I remember sitting in a satellite truck viewing some video about the fifth day after one of the funerals, and I caught myself in tears because I'm watching the, you know the the reaction of of one of the parents uh, at a funeral, and I thought you know and that, look I've been doing this for thirty years so yeah. I've been to accidents I've been to crime scenes I've been to this and that and you know there's a certain veneer you have but there was something about that event. There's something about that loss of life and all those kids and, you know, Obama showing up and giving the speech he's given before and since about gun control and thinking, what is it going to take to make people change their view? Yeah. And I, it was probably that was the greatest distinction for me, the greatest distinction between being an American and Canadian was the gun control issue.
0: Interesting. Was that the hardest story <sighs> that you've ever had to cover?
1: It was one of the most heart-wrenching, yeah. I think. Definitely the most heart-wrenching. You know, it wasn't an exclusive story. It was a story with, sure. you know, world media. Um, but it was just, it to me, it seemed senseless, right? You know, if a, if a, a plane crashes and people die, well, that's tragic. And maybe somebody screwed up or maybe it was just meant to be. But when somebody is able to buy a gun and an assault weapon and do this and create catastrophe and change lives forever... And that's preventable it just that was just heart-wrenching yeah and and you know we've seen tragedies since since that was, many sins yeah and, and and this is the the futility of a lot of this you know you look at how things should be better and could be better and would they be better if we change policies a certain way you know as a journalist you know i don't talk about my political opinions very much i don't generally get into it because I don't feel, you know, I want to put myself into that position. But when it came to the, the that story and that that unnecessary loss of life, I just thought, wow, this is just wrong.
0: Hmm.
1: You know, I'm I'm so happy to be a Canadian. I'm so happy to be in this establishment knowing that, yeah. you know, the people are not carrying guns and that, you know, as much as, you know, in this city there's a lot of um, hand wringing about police and you know, weapons and shootings and all of that for good reason. Don't yeah. get me wrong; for very good reason. Yeah. But I'm much happier personally as a citizen and uh, somebody who lives in downtown Toronto. I'm happier that the police have guns, and unlike in a place like Florida where everybody's got a gun, where everyone has, I, a gun. I don't, I don't, I don't feel safer where everybody's got a gun. Yeah. And that incident in Connecticut just reaffirmed
0: that. Wow. Um, what's the what 's the biggest story i don 't know if it, if it 's if, if big means it 's an exclusive, but um, you know what was the biggest story that you 've ever covered yourself
1: hmm the very biggest well i mean the the biggest recent story was probably the marathon shoot ball, bombing Boston. in Boston because it represented to me uh, a story about vulnerability again huh. and and here you have uh, You know, I I got into running a couple of years ago. I do some half marathons and stuff like that, even though I've got a broken ankle right (laughs) now. Um, But I thought, you know, here it is where you've got uh, people out to do something for recreation and something that is a significant event. And there you go, you're not safe. So it was significant because it just, to me, represented um, uh, a case of, of how vulnerable we all are. And I thought back to to last year with the Pan Am Games. I went to, my wife and I went to a lot of events at City yeah. Hall and we took in, it was it was great living downtown and seeing all that stuff. And you thought, wow, um, if if somebody wanted to do something like that, like drop a bag and explode a bomb or cause chaos, for all the security that they put into place, there's no way that you could have prevented something like what happened in Boston from happening in Toronto. Sure. And I put the context of what I'd seen in Boston into my head when I'm walking around. And you don't like to think about that stuff because, you know, it's kind of like wondering whether the car coming toward you on a two-lane road is going to stay in its lane or cross the road. You can't think about it all the time. But I do think about it occasionally, and that made me think about it based on Boston, that here we are trusting that people are going to do the right thing and not terrorize our society and yet this happened you know an hour and a half away by plane yeah and it, it frightened me again
0: huh i w- i was very impressed actually with the pan am games in toronto um i was i was one of those people that go this is gonna be crazy this is good this is this ain't gonna work here nobody cares um no one's gonna watch this thing well, we ended up going to a baseball game. Um, we ended up going to, uh, see, um, uh, the Paralympic swimming. Um, we saw seated volleyball. Um, and I think I'm missing one other thing, but, oh. You really we, went to town. We saw ju- judo, martial arts. We saw martial arts. Um, it was awesome. It was really, really good. My favorite part was the express lanes on the highway.
1: <laughs> so when they had the express lanes on the highway and you needed three. Yeah. We had an intern who came with us on all the shoots we did. So we had a cameraman <laughs> editor, myself, and an intern. So we, we got around great. And, and the intern was not uh, just there for show, but it was really great. It was a fast way to get around. But I agree with you. I, I enjoyed it. Hey, I've only lived in Toronto for two years now. My wife and I lived in Oakville for 26 years. Oh, wow. Way out in sort of what we'd refer to now as a bit of the hinterland. You know, I did that commute uh, that hour and fifteen commute for twenty five twenty six years, and now i 'm you know I live two blocks from where we 're doing this interview oh, right okay. downtown at St Lawrence market, and I walk everywhere and i you know we enjoy everything downtown and the Pan Am games were great i I agree you know yeah. in the media i think we we emphasized a lot of the negative in the in the in the run up to it and so many people were talking about leaving town and getting away and and not doing it and there was a lot of negativity but the people that were out there like you and me i thought people really enjoyed it it was well traffic done traffic
0: was fine um we actually had to go out to mississauga for the martial arts and we said okay you know what we're going to do a public transit all the way cuz it was f- it was free if, it was you, free had if you had a ticket yeah. so we had a ticket and we went all the way and it was like it was fine you know i i was i was very surprised, very happy, very proud of the way it turned out. Um, now, I know recently that there's been some um, some people angry at the recent report uh, that came out in terms of um, the funds that were spent on everything from um, bonuses and, and such uh, that many people felt were, were uh, unnecessary. Uh, but I think it was a job well done, generally. You know, fr- from a, from someone who was living here and uh, consumed some of the events.
1: I agree. I mean, people are always going to get upset when there's overspending or yeah. they see a boondoggle and they think that people, you know, shouldn't be getting paid so much. So there's a lot of justification. But in in terms of the actual events and the volunteers and the spirit and the way that it was handled, I, I went to synchronized diving. With my wife, we went to uh, women's basketball downtown, and, it was, and and the Maple Leaf Gardens, or pardon me, the uh, Nathan Phillips Square yeah. events. There was a real good spirit yeah. in the city, and, and that was great to see. And for somebody who's worked in the city for almost 30 years but hasn't lived here for, at that point, we've only been here for about a year. It was like living in a brand new city. It was, a, nice. it was like a treat. It was like a vacation.
0: Nice. Um, what's your favorite story that you've covered?
1: favorite story. Um, I would say the favorite stories are the ones of people who can't get it right themselves have to call us and we can make a difference. And uh, those are the kinds of stories where you've got, you know, a woman who has been, you know, overcharged by a big utility or a story we did the other day of a, a guy who'd been mischarged, you know, to the tune of $7,000 by utility. That was
0: a recent one, wasn't it? That yeah. was last week. Yeah, so, yeah. you know,
1: the, the idea that you can't get anywhere on your own, even though you're right, and then you can come to somebody like me, and I call it the power of shame when it comes to media. Okay. So some, somebody like me in at Global, you know, on our segment, you know, the, the person has done everything they're supposed to do, right? They're entitled to a refund or they were supposed to be treated a certain way or a contractor, you know, uh, abused them. And the power of shame is being able to shine a light on that person and those activities or that corporation's activities and saying, "Wait a minute, that's not right." And and so those are the stories where there's a change of heart or where the company or the individual says, "Okay, You know, we've got to make this right, and it wouldn't happen before making that difference. Yeah, Yeah. and and I think you know more and more. What I've found over the last few years is because of deregulation of a lot of things, and uh, people who find that you know they're they're vulnerable Um, to be able to help people. I mean, I've been a journalist a long time, but what gives me the most pleasure is being able to help people along the way. And I'm telling you it's 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 great to get it used to be in the old days you get you know uh, a basket of cookies from from somebody sure. or you get something <laughs> like that. Now it's the emails, and that's great, or the email or the <laughs> card or something like that, and it or makes the free, you f-
0: the free beer today <laughs>
1: <laughs> You've got a good clientele here <laughs> but just to be able to to do something that goes beyond just the reporting to try to do something that makes a difference, I mean that you know makes that makes it all worthwhile
0: Nice. Um, how, how did you get into the consumer side, you know, the consumer reporting?
1: Aside from the fact that my wife was a consumer reporter oh, at okay. uh, CBC, All right. um, I, I seem to get assigned to a few of these stories where I guess I had a bit of determination and one thing led to another and that kind of became a niche and I liked it and, and I liked the idea that you could, you know, use the power within the media with respect and, you know to its to its proper purpose and try to effect some change and uh, you know like let's face it people are buying something all the time you know yeah. from cell phones to airline tickets people are spending money all the time not necessarily in a reckless way not everybody's going out to buy a high-end automobile but you know people are trusting companies that when they sign a contract that the contract's going to be honored so there's all these consumer decisions being made all the time all these people who are Hoping that they're going to be treated properly, and the reality is, um, they're not. So huh. it's an endless supply of possible stories for me, and there's sure. so many people out there, you know, who need it. They can't afford to go to a lawyer for $350 an hour to write a letter about something where nothing will happen, but they can afford to pick up the phone or write an email to us, and we can we can get involved and try to try to help out. So I guess it's what got me interested is the fact that there's a direct connect between. The viewer or the listener or the, the the consumer of of news and what we do
0: nice um, so let 's talk about scams <laughs> 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 um, or yeah scam we 'll call them scams um, what 's the what 's the biggest one that you 've seen
1: contractor scams contractor scams. bad contractor scams So, I'll give you an example somebody comes to your door with a flyer and says, you know, we do these kinds of renovations and uh, it's going to cost you $6,000. And you've already shopped around and that same product's going to cost you $16,000. So you hire the guy who did the, the mailing, knocked on your door. But he says, look, it's going to be $4,000 up front and da-da-da-da-da. And the reality is in those scams, you give your money, the person takes the money, the person doesn't do the work or there's some variation of that where you give your money up front trusting that they're going to do the work and they, they take off and the police generally don't do anything about it because the police say, you've got to go to small claims court. You've got to deal with some other, you know, area and, and people are out cash and the reality is most people can't afford to lose that kind of money. And the really, the big thing that bothers me is so many of those targeted people are elderly people, uh, single women who are older people, Uh, people who have some kind of dementia or Alzheimer's or the really vulnerable people generally taking taking advantage of, even though in my career I've seen lots of lawyers and doctors and accountants get scammed. But on the contractor scam, it's generally, you know, it's the door-to-door thing. It's the I can do the work for you thing, but I need the money up front. So I'm always telling people, hey, never give the money up
0: front. No, definitely not. Um, and, And don't give work to a guy that's just delivered your pizza.
1: Yeah, you know, you're right. I mean, but but people <laughs> but people do it, or people say, "Hey, that guy had a website. He must have been credible." Yeah. I, who hasn't got a website? You know. So, but but people. I never criticize people for making the mistake because sure. I realize how vulnerable people are. You know, I I really don't because it's easy. It is so easy, and some of these scam artists are so good. Yeah. I've interviewed people uh, on on surprise interviews after we've caught them. And these guys, the scammers, the good ones, can almost make you doubt the story that you've got. They're so good because they twist the facts around or they've got that cunning character. that They don't call them confidence men for nothing, right? They build Ah. your confidence. So they're good. The good ones I'm in awe of. And there's so many that are really smart. But it drives me crazy that so many people get fleeced and, yeah. and, and that there's no regulatory way to deal with a lot of these people. If you, if you, for example, years ago, 20 years ago, I remember going to Montreal and going to a boiler room, which is where they, they perpetrate a lot of these phone scams, to get money back for a woman in Mississauga who had fallen for one of these lottery scams. You know, she had been told that she'd won a, uh, a new Cadillac. And... Uh, but she had to send $7,000 as a processing fee. And, and the woman, you know, a smart, otherwise smart, educated woman did it. And we went to Montreal, and thankfully these guys gave us the money back because they didn't want any more exposure. But it's those kinds of things that just drive you crazy. Wow. And, and the thing is, if you perpetrate a scam in Canada and you get caught, the police generally don't pursue them. But if you get caught, the courts generally don't prosecute them or take them all that seriously. Try to do that in the States. Try to do that. Try to scam an American, and the courts will take it very seriously. Years wow. ago, I did a story, and this American, this Canadian who was caught um, in Texas uh, was eventually uh, uh, sentenced to 20 years in jail on Whoa. a plea bargain uh, for having ripped off a bunch of uh, consumers, but they were American. So the Americans take it seriously. Canadians, Canadian uh, judiciary doesn't take it as as seriously. So this is why it happens so often.
0: Wow, wow. There's, there's a... Uh there's a few scams that I've sort of been on the periphery of. Uh, the most recent one, and, and, and it, I didn't get scammed, but apparently it's going around, was getting a phone call <laughs> from someone who says, um, we just redid your taxes and you owe us money. Uh, I've been trying to get a hold of you. You don't return my calls. Um, we're now going to the courts.
1: That sounds like a variation of the CRA scam. Where they, that's, yes. that's a CRA scam. Yes, yeah. yeah, so they call you and they tell you that uh, if you don't pay up, yeah. you're going to go to jail. Yeah. And they, they're threatening to send the police after you, and they're yeah. convincing. And some of these guys are very convincing, and it's happened where recently um, uh, I, I was called by one co- consumer who said that uh, her father had actually fallen for this, and the the scammer had sent the father to purchase iTunes cards. So went to Walmart, and I'm, I'm not exaggerating here, uh, to buy $8,000 worth of iTunes cards that they would then get on the phone, give the code for redemption to, to the scammers. And after about $1,000, he realized he was being taken advantage of. But again, you're preying on a lot of people who don't know better. And a lot of these scammers prey on immigrant Canadians. People who come from another country, yeah. don't understand the rules, don't understand the system, don't realize that this would never happen. But you know, there's so much resourcefulness out yeah. there. You get up in the you get up in the morning and plan your day and figure out how you're gonna how you're gonna work that day and, and earn your dollar and, and the people that do these scams do the same thing, but they're plotting it in a far different oh, way. Oh
0: yeah. I got called twice within like a few weeks <laughs> on this and and I I figured it was a scam as soon as I started. He asked me for my address or something. And I said, You should have it. What you tell me and I'll confirm. And then he says, Hold on and then the phone hung up and I go oh, shit, that was a scam. <laughs> so I went online, and I Googled it, and, and sure enough, I think it's on the CRA website. So I called them up. I said, listen, this is what's happened. Here's the phone number they called me from. Um, and then I get the call soon after. Um, I said, oh, really? So I owe you money? Really? How much? <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, it <laughs> doesn't work that like way. Like yeah.
0: <laughs> um, do you yeah. Do you... So, okay, so someone called you... Uh, the iTunes one. I'm wondering, um, have you ever figured out about this Nigerian prince? <laughs>
1: <laughs> We've done a few stories on those, although not for a long time. The mailings still come out. They do. From time to time.
0: My sister-in-law works um, front line at the Royal Bank and she still sees older women coming in taking out large money orders, and now they're trained to ask, what is this for? Who are you sending it to? Do you know the person? Um, Because they've seen these same people come back in tears saying, I just sent my money and I think someone has stolen it now. Uh, It's crazy.
1: I'm working on a story right now involving a major bank where a customer received a uh, Publishers Clearinghouse check for $16,000. And this woman was actually a customer and did things with Publishers Clearinghouse. Believing it to be bona fide, she went to her bank and she deposited the check. And the check cleared. And then the stipulation was that they asked that she send 10000 back to this institution. Of course, it's a red flag. You never send money back. But the bank actually cleared the check, gave her the money, and then... Sent the money, all of it, to the scammer and then subsequently came back and said the check, in fact, didn't clear and then held the customer on the hook from a personal account. So that's not right. I mean, if you're yeah. going to clear a check, you should be clearing it and doing your due diligence to make sure it's bona fide. So, you know, these things happen all the time. And it's, it's really sad with, with seniors because, you know, everybody's got a parent or a grandparent sure. and they're more vulnerable and there tends to be more trust. You know, we walked along King Street here and we tried to get money from people. A lot of the, you know, young, savvy people here are not going to do that. But an older person, and I'm not generalizing, but it's a fact. uh, An older person answering the phone of a certain age will, you know, will say sure or believe people. That's the way people were raised at a different time. Yeah, you trust people. It's too bad.
0: Yeah. Um, There was this tooth whitening thing. I don't know if you remember this. Um, millions of dollars, tens of millions of dollars, I believe. Um, the reason I bring this up was that my, my family got got milked for a bunch of cash. Um, yeah, and a lot of people that we knew got milked. And, you know, I'm, I'm curious, you know, what happens. And apparently this guy continues to do stuff like this. Um, you know, is, is what safeguards... Or what can people do, um, you know, to double check, I guess?
1: So you have to be like a defensive driver. So I ride a a motorcycle scooter in the city. And so I'm a super defensive driver when I'm going through the city. I look left and right. I don't trust anybody that they're going to stop for me. So I think as a consumer, you've kind of got to do the same thing. Never buy anything at the door knock, 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 I've got this thing, thank you very much, leave me the information, I'll consider it. Never make a deal at the door, never sign a contract at the door, never make a split decision like that. Um, never do the same thing on the phone. If you get a phone call from somebody and you're on the polite side, listen, thank them, ask them to send information, or just hang up. You know. And we're talking about older people and solicitations, just say no. You know. Um, if, if you didn't ask for something in terms of a quote a bid uh something it's probably not in your best interest so i i think that that's what you've got to do you just got to got to say you know you've got to be a little rude as much mm. as that's kind of not the canadian thing sure, sure thank you i can't goodbye hang up um because you know no good generally comes from somebody knocking on your door offering you something you may or may not need no good comes from somebody saying i need to see your power bill you know like Forget it. But that's what people do. They yeah. want to get into your life. And bad people do this on a regular basis and get away with it. And it's really hard to get your money back once you've lost it. It's hard to get out of a contract once you've signed it. And these patterns just happen over and over again.
0: Wow. I'm beginning to think that real estate is a scam. In what sense? Why is it so expensive?
1: That's a good one. To have a home. Well that's a good one but
0: maybe it's a maybe it's a legal scam.
1: Sure, and there's lots of those. But you know, as long as people think that they're never going to be able to afford it if they don't buy it now and keep bidding things up, people are the masters of their own misfortune there, right? Yeah. So I think I think people get over enthusiastic and people think that they can afford it now. People think that it's going to cost more later if they don't do it. And then let's face it, through media there's all kinds of pumping up of 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 the market. Yeah. You know, if you ever talk to a real estate agent, whether you're a journalist or you're just a customer, they'll always tell you it's a good time to sell and they'll always tell you it's a good time to buy. I don't care whether it was 2008 and the economic downturn. It's a great time to sell. It's a great time to buy. Because for the real estate industry, it's always a good time to do both. Yeah. Because based on commissions, it's never a bad time to do nothing.
0: No, absolutely.
1: And and so, but ultimately, I think consumers have to take responsibility. Don't pay for something you can't afford don't pay too much for something and when you get these bidding wars and, and things like that ultimately if people keep driving those prices up it hurts everybody yeah and nobody can afford anything but that's the way of the market right
0: um pyramid schemes you know whether it's the um the amways of the world or not your your thoughts on those
1: I don't see so many of those in terms of the complaints uh, as as we used to because, frankly, I think there's other ways to make more money. Okay. You know, there's better <laughs> ways to scam people yeah. than there are. That takes a lot of work. <laughs> I think what I've seen over the years is that people look for really the easiest target ways to, to try to scam people, and that's with you know online marketing yeah. scams and these ones where you, you've got online marketing where somebody's offering you uh, uh, free cream, or free facial cream oh and God. all these ones. We did stories on those. And, oh and the, the little trick is that you've given your credit card. And then what they do is they whack your credit card after the first freebie. And now you're signed on to this contract that's going to cost you $95 a month for the next three years.
0: If so. you're working on a story, I know where those guys are. <laughs> <laughs> my brother um, was working for a company like that. Um, and he was doing data and analytics. And he says, Cream, this is how it works you get your free cream, but in the fine print, um, cream number two in three weeks is 85 bucks. And he says, there's a percentage of people that will call in and cancel right away. Uh, but then that small percentage of people that let the first one go through is small, but valuable enough that the company makes money. Um, and then he says by the third time there's, there is no third time people catch on, but he says there's enough people, um, in North America that will buy the anti-aging cream um, that companies like this um, are are making boatloads you boatloads said it, of cash. you said
1: it right though percentages right yeah. so coming back to the you know the the african king right yeah. with all the money <laughs> you send out you know 100,000 of these spams it doesn't take it just takes one or sure. two or three or whatever and what does it cost you you're not sending postage no it's it's inexpensive marketing uh, appealing to people who may or may not have a sense of sophistication, right? And again, I come back to it's not always the, the doctor and the lawyer and the accountant who's smarter than everybody else, but often they are more guarded about things. But it doesn't take much. You would get one or two people and you've, you've made a lot of money. It doesn't take much. Yeah. Yeah, the door-to-door scams are great. The high commission stuff where somebody's selling... Lawn care services or water heaters or uh, a furnace or an air conditioning system that you don't need, but that person that sells it and you get into a long term contract and that sales guy is getting five hundred or thousand bucks you know that's great money,
0: yeah for sure um, are we are we being uh scammed by the cell phone companies
1: boy um and
0: internet you know yeah. i think in canada they're this one in the it's same. it's
1: expensive it's really really expensive it's over the top i mean I, I had a cell phone my own personal one is about 50 bucks a month and i got a bill for 114 dollars the other day and i guess i've i've probably used too much data and i'm really stingy about the data so you know I, I think you're right i think that you know people are you know there's not much competition here yeah and and so everybody kind of plays by the same rate game and, you know, but nobody wants to give it up, right? Like, try to find somebody who wants to be without their cell phone. I don't care what your economic You're strata so is. so right. You know, years ago in 08, when the financial downturn hit and the, and the recession was on, you know, there were surveys about how much, what pe- people would rather give up food than give up their connectivity. Yeah. And I think that it's probably even more the case today. People, people want to be connected. There
0: was a study, people would rather give up sex than their cell phone. 100%.
1: It's crazy. Yeah. So, so I think that, look, these, these studies are not lost on the, on the Internet and the cell phone companies. They know where it's at, and they know that people will pay for it and whether they can afford it or not. So um, I was over in Africa doing a project uh, four years ago for Journalists for Human Rights, uh, which is uh, an NGO based in Toronto trying to help uh, bring awareness to um, journalism issues. And uh, I spent, uh, with no word of a lie, a monthly, um, and it was everything is pay-as-you-go there. Yeah, yeah. I spent roughly $20 a month for my cell phone, including uh, internet, pardon me, a, a small amount of internet and long-distance back-and-forth to Canada. $20 for the month. I was on the phone all the time, texting, phoning. That's in, in Ghana. And, and so why can that happen in a place like Ghana? Well, first of all, you know, the system is different. People don't have $100 a month to pay. Sure. Somebody like, I, I would not be spending that there if I'm a Ghanaian. So there are less expensive ways to do it. I think that you know, people feel gouged, and they probably have a good reason to feel gouged. Oh, for here. sure.
0: No, I was in East Africa in, in, in 2010. People have multiple cell phones. They've got cell phones with multiple SIM cards in we, we did.
1: A, I did a story on a woman who was a TV anchor at the local network. Yeah. She had 15 cell phones she carried with her at all times. One phone with a particular plan for texting. One yes. for uh, international calling. One for this kind of calling. It, nobody here would do that. No. But there they'll do that because yeah, it was, it's about cost savings.
0: Yeah. I've never seen anything like it. It was amazing to see, and again, six years ago, but they were able with sms technology to use their phone not a card but to use a phone to get money out of a bank account a, a bank machine mm-hmm. i thought that was that blew my mind and i went there and i was like we we don't have this in canada yet this is crazy <laughs> yeah. you know um but yeah it was it was it was wild it was wild to me uh, tell me about this um uh, Journalist for Human Rights.
1: JHR. It's J-H-R. based J-H-R. in Toronto, yeah. and uh, and I was a, a trainer, so I worked with uh, young journalists at a television network in Ghana. But they send uh, trainers and um, younger journalists out in different parts of the world to try to, you know, help improve their storytelling skills and uh, try to help improve journalism um, and and freedom of of expression issues around the world, which is great because there's so many places like, you know, Ghana, um, Liberia, Sierra Leone, the Congo, places where they work, where, you know, there isn't a vast journalism education training program. There's no great history or the history is of governments, you know, taking charge of journalists in places like that funny story in, a, in Ghana there's a I don't remember the, the term they use for it anymore but when the government has press conferences they actually pay the journalists to attend so if you attend they give you effectively what amounts to sort of a tip okay and it they they, they kind of they don't make it sound like it's a payoff they make it sound like it's sort of expenses for you to get there on your own because okay. so many journalists uh, are self-employed there so something like that would never happen in a place like Canada sure so part of what we you know, would do is educate people on the possible problems with accepting this money and being seen to be beholden to a government and, yeah. and that sort of thing. But, you know, it is a different economy. People live uh, with a lot less. Yeah. And, and trying to raise the awareness of, of, of what a journalist's responsibility is, it was is, is part of their mandate. So I, we had a great time, and I'm a big supporter of that organization, Amazing. which is based here in Toronto.
0: We were in Cuba when Obama went to visit. Um,
1: that must have been great. It,
0: it was it was phenomenal. It was I was a little bit upset because I wanted to see a baseball game. <laughs> and at the, the time that we went was when there's usually the Cuban Baseball League playoffs. Uh, and I'm a huge baseball fan. And so we couldn't see a baseball game because they shut down the league for like a week or so um, to prepare for Obama. And then there was a Cuban team that played uh, the Tampa Bay Rays team. But... Um, I think it was I don't know if it was by invite only, but tickets weren't you know readily available, uh, so couldn't go to that. But it was interesting to watch the news conference um, and seeing um, Castro, not Fid- I guess it was Fidel's brother, Raúl, Raúl Castro, have to answer questions. Which which to us is yeah you answer questions, but apparently there's never questions that that get asked in Cuba, um, you know to their leaders. Um, so that was that was that was kind of interesting. Yeah, it's a
1: different. It, there's, it's journalism and the relationships between politics, politicians, and and I guess the people are so different around the world.
0: Yeah. Do you have um? You know, recently we've we've seen and heard news, and I can't remember names off the top of my head of, of journalists that have recently been freed or journalists that are in, in jail. Um. You know, is this sort of this the the work that JHR does to um? Advocate on, on, on behalf of these sorts of things?
1: There are other organizations that are more fundamentally involved in trying to, you know, free journalists and yeah. speak up for them that way. JHR is more about trying to raise the quality of journalism okay. in places okay. uh, in Africa and around the world where they don't have that kind of an education. And where, you know, freedom of information is is not necessarily, as you described, you know, Cuba, where there's not, you know, that legacy of interviewing there's a legacy of accepting what is said, sure. and and just trying to get people in other parts of the world to realize, hey, you can ask a question. You should be able to advocate for for people who are uh, who are members of the public. Um, those are the those are the key things that that they do, which is I think really more and more really really necessary.
0: Yeah. Um. I've, I've kept you here for more than an hour, so thank you so much for your time. But I, I do have one question. I want to get your, your thoughts on this. Um, and, and it goes to the, you know, you, you, you can have an opinion. We don't necessarily uh, need to agree, but, um, you know, I will support your right to have that sort of thing. Um, you know, and, and, and you know here in Canada, we've got, you know, what people would see as media bias, whether it's uh, on the right of the political spectrum, center or, or on the left. Um, And then you have, you know, recently media, um, you know, not legacy media, but sort of this new media, you know, uh, the BuzzFeeds of the world, Vice and things like that. And recently down in the States, um, Gawker, you know, which, you know, Torontonians will remember that name fondly as uh, the outlet that broke, um, you know, the Ford story. Um, And they're, I don't know if they're seized operations yet, but I don't know if you followed this story um, court judgment. And, court judgment. And they're out of business. They're out of business. But the lawsuit brought against them by Hulk Hogan um, was funded by a tech millionaire. And I can't remember his name. Um, but it goes to that, you know, one of the questions that arose from this is, you know, you don't necessarily have to agree with the type of journalism uh, that a, a site... Uh, that Gawker, um, you know, produces. Um, But them being a media, do you necessarily... I don't know what the word is, but is it important for them to still exist?
1: I think that, you know, the proliferation of online media has given way more voices, way more points of view than ever were the case. I mean, I work in a traditional media organization, a global, and traditional organizations are trying to find a way to remain relevant and expand their relevancy mm-hmm. in this world. I mean, there's no secret about that. Um, so I think that there's nothing wrong with a, an array of voices. And if, if you know, if, if you have a smart consumer in the sense of a media consumer, and that's what I really like. I like it when people uh, educate themselves yeah. and realize, hey, you know, this particular site has a point of view. Be aware of that point of view you can you can read it, you can believe it, but just understand that that's their point of view. Versus maybe a more traditional um, site like Global or the CBC or CTV, sure. which which acts with a certain set of principles. There's media guidelines, there's journalistic practices and procedures. So as long as you know the difference, there's nothing wrong with that. I think the the more the merrier in many ways. Um, but I think what scares me is that. If I run into somebody who says, yeah, yeah, I saw that on this and they don't realize that there is this bias or that this organization is funded by this particular point of view uh, or that they're not using journalists, but those those tweets or those messages are being paid for by a corporate organization. That's the frightening thing is if people are not media literate uh, Mm -hmm. and they accept what's being said without uh, without vetting it or without knowing what they're getting. That's a worry, and yeah. I think we should all be worried uh, for a couple of reasons, because that shouldn't be the default standard for journalism and for democracy. I mean, I don't want to sound high-handed here, but you know I've worked as a journalist for 35 years in television and radio and in print, and I think it's really important that journalism exists for the benefit of, of democracy, for the benefit of free speech, because once you lose that. You know, you're in a situation where people don't have a real voice and you're going to have all these perspectives which are one sided and which are corporately driven. And I think, you know, as much as some people don't think that mainstream media speaks for uh, for them, um, you know, having worked in it. Yes, there's points of view in, in mainstream media, no question about it. But I'd still rather, you know, have mainstream media that are out there going and covering stories, taking risks where they're at risk of getting sued we're getting into trouble and we do that all the time I think that's really important for society in general for democracy yeah. so to your original point the more the merrier when it comes to different sites but let's make sure that the the person who's consuming the news consuming information sure. has an education about it
0: absolutely um, you've, you've never planned your career you know in terms of <laughs> you know where your next step is you for be, better or worse for be- yeah sure um, the guy who bought you the beer would say for the better. <laughs> A very good customer. Thank you. (laughs) Uh, But, you know, you've been at Global for 29 years. Um, What's next for Sean?
1: I love, and it's going to sound corny, I love going to work and doing the stories I'm doing. You know, I don't know what's around the corner. And when you're in this business right now, you don't know what is around the corner. Sure. Um, So, you know, the next thing is the next thing, which is um, what I like to do, uh, training young journalists, Um, watching technology change, you know, we were using cameras in different ways we didn't use before. I'm into that. I love social media. You know, I work in a traditional media side, but I love Twitter. I love Facebook. I love different, different technologies that help tell the stories. I just, I just love doing that. And, and I like interacting with people. And I think, you know, we live in a great city Uh, for all its foibles and for, you know, its failings and for all the the stuff people criticize uh, the city about, and we do that all the time. I work in media. and That's part of our job. You know, it's a great place to be, and, and I'm really happy to be living here.
0: Nice. Listen, thanks so much for your time, Sean. Thanks, Kareem. Really I really appreciate, appreciate it. it.